0: Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we somehow end up trusting the leeches more than we do as hosts. Because today, we're talking about Stockholm Syndrome. What is it? Is it real? And why is it named after the city in which we are recording this podcast from? All of these questions and more we will answer. But first, I'm Mia.
1: And I'm Salem.
0: And how have you been, my dear co-host? Sick. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I have
1: been really sick for a very long time. Um, And let me use that as a a transition into saying that we're very sorry for not (laughs) releasing an episode for kind of a long time. But we have both been really sick. And we have not been feeling able to do anything other than lay in bed and take turns eating soup. So that has been going on. Although I did also go to Rome uh, on the weekend.
0: This is like classic European thing to say as well. It's just like I felt sick for many weeks, but then I went to Rome um, and, <laughs>
1: and now I'm back. Then I and ate I'm bad ready- soup. <laughs> yeah, and now I'm ready to um, to do work again. Speaking of soup, do you want me to tell the story of how I ate bad soup in Rome?
0: <laughs> Please, I haven't heard this story. I, think. I told you the story. I don't remember you the story. I thought it was very funny. Tell the story of bad soup.
1: So I went to Rome very, with a very good friend. We were very excited to eat a lot of pasta and pizza. Of course, you go to Rome, you have to eat Italian food.
0: Mm-hmm. Mamma mia. Um, eat a spicy meatballs.
1: <laughs> we went into a restaurant. We tried to order soup. The guy said, you should only order one portion of soup because... The soup oh, portions yeah. are very big. We were like, okay, we'll order a portion of soup. They brought back the soup. It was a regular sized portion. <laughs> they put the bowl of soup in the middle of the table. Would not understand that we want it split into two bowls. And then the guy was like, I never said that, that the soup is, is a big portion. <laughs> you were crazy? <laughs> you were crazy.
0: Gaslighting. Like you. literally
1: lied to our face. And uh, the soup was horrible in the end. We argued with the waiter about the soup for like 20 minutes. In the end, it tasted like shit so Ah! um weird restaurant i don't know what the oh wait another thing he said that the chef doesn't like it when people don't finish their food which was vaguely threatening Mm -hmm. so overall very weird experience thank you rome yeah how have you been
0: i also got sick uh got real sick for a long time uh and then i've been mentally sick Mm. Got, got brain worms uh, which is also not great. So if if you're listening to this podcast wondering why I haven't released a YouTube video also for many, many months, uh, that's why. Deeply... And then I've done fuck all else since last time we recorded. You know, like, I've been playing a little Baldur's Gate. Yeah. I've been going to work mm. in the capacity that I can. A bit of person. I'm alive. And you know what? Sometimes that's the most important thing you can do. I feel like
1: balancing a podcast between two people who both get sick kind of often and are also mentally ill can be challenging sometimes turns out
0: honestly surprised we managed to put out as many episodes as we have
1: sometimes i look back at the release schedule and like mostly it's been pretty consistent Mm -hmm. and i'm kind of impressed with my with ourselves that like we've actually been managing to release an episode every three weeks for like two years it's only recently that we've started being a little bit iffy about it which i'm sorry about. but considering our state of being, <laughs> I guess it's the not the most severity of
0: brain worms.
1: It's not the most surprising thing in the world.
0: I saw a TikTok the other day where people talk about like how their mental illness like kind of defines them and makes them. them. And they kinda of like having like a quirk. And I need people listening that like we have mental illness that aren't quirks, we have mental illness that gets you to the mental ward. Mm. When you when you have that, it's, it, it's I'm really proud of ourselves for making it, being able to make a podcast the way we have. Um, but not to vent too much about that, I have enjoyed Baldur's Gate quite a lot. I've reached <laughs> Act Two. I'm very happy about that. I'm I talk almost, too much about Shadowheart. To be fair,
1: I'm almost finishing it, which mm. I feel like it's it's been taking me a very long time to finish it since mm. it's been out for seven months, eight months, so, so
0: seven something months, like that.
1: But Yeah, it's a good game. Um, We're also streaming it, also something that we're trying to do more regularly. Mm. So the next thing that we do before we get into the actual episode is answer listener questions that people leave on Spotify, which is a a little segment that I suggested doing, and I really like doing it. So our question this episode comes from Matt. And it's actually directed at you, Mia. Oh. And the question goes, how come your spider phobia isn't triggered by crabs? They're basically aquatic spiders, aren't they? Anyway, I can't wait for the dedicated horseshoe crab. Please. <laughs> the floor is
0: yours. It's, they're not. N- no, they, no. They really are. No. No, they're not. Because <laughs> I'm trying to come up with an argument. But here's the thing, right? Here's the thing about phobias. Right, we could make a whole episode about phobia specifically. Phobias are, by definition, irrational. There, there is no way to make sense of them. Like people are afraid of buttons and stuff like that. People are afraid, like being afraid of, uh, being afraid of the dark when you go outside. Like that's not a phobia because that's a reasonable fear. Shit's out there. Um, Being afraid of sharks when you see like sharks far away. Like yes, that's a reasonable fear. Being afraid of sharks when you take a bath in your home. That's a phobia because that's irrational. Uh, So. My sense, my answer is I don't have to give you a proper answer <laughs> because it's irrational. The other one is that um, they're big, they're bigger. Mm. Uh, I have a thing about like, I like tarantulas, for example. Mm. I actually actively like tarantulas because I like spiders whose natural state is kind of being s- like slowly meandering.
1: But they can run fast though.
0: They can. However, that's not their natural, <laughs> that's not their go-to, that's not their default move. <laughs> their default move is sort of like me- slowly meandering. Crabs are somewhere like in the middle. They're, they kind of sometimes skitter, but they mostly meander. What I don't like are like spiders that are small enough where I can tell that they have multiple appendages, but, I, but their default state of being is skittering because they're so small that that's the only way that they can get around anywhere. And with my spider rant out of the way, we also of course want to give a special thanks to our dear patrons, the one who arguably have become victims of Stockholm Syndrome to the point of supporting us financially. Uh, We tricked you. Without you, we could not make this podcast possible and we love this podcast so, so much. So thank you for that. Patrons get access to special content such as notes of our scripts and a video version of the podcast where you get to see our lovely faces. And of course, Patrons also get the chance for an in-episode shout-out. And in this episode, we want to shout-out... Jerry Jerry James! James. Uh, Thank you, Jerry James.
1: Thank you, Jerry James. You
0: have the perfect name to be a Pokemon villain. (laughs) Your name is basically Team Rocket. And that's respectable. Um, Get
1: ready for trouble and make it double. (laughs) Or single, because you're one person. (laughs) Okay, with that being said, let's dig into the Syndrome.
0: So, for the sake of unusuality, I'm the one who's starting off today's episode, like in the content bit. Usually you're the one who gives sort of like the the description of what the condition is, but this one's a little special. Partially it's about psychology. We don't, we don't, do, do, we we don't, don't do, do a lot
1: of episodes about psychology. No, we
0: don't. We prefer like germs and stuff. And also the syndrome is a bit special because it's named after one specific event. And uh, that falls into my wheelhouse. That's history, baby. <laughs> Um, But for those of you who don't know, Stockholm Syndrome is the phenomenon of captives siding with or sympathizing with their captors more than they do the outside world or the people who want to free them. It's similar to the phenomena of trauma bonding, the condition where people empathize with their abusers. And special for Stockholm Syndrome is that this usually happens in the long term, after Uh, for example, a kidnapping event, so after the person is freed they still hold sympathy for the kidnapper. The syndrome is commonly attributed to people who refuse to leave cults that they were kidnapped into, or, as in the case which gave the phenomenon its name, hostages siding with bank robbers and kidnappers. The syndrome allegedly causes patients to behave in ways that are irrational, demonstrated by the idea that this empathy or rationalization remains with the patient long after the traumatic events in question. It is a rare syndrome, with only around 8% of hostages in hostage situations showing any kind of sympathy for their kidnappers, and not everyone in those 8% have Stockholm Syndrome. I'll get into why it's called Stockholm Syndrome in just a little second, I know I say that a lot, and I know I'm trying to remove it from the, from the content, but it is important in this case, because f- before we get into that, I do need to mention brainwashing. We've heard about the concept of brainwashing, like in media, and this syndrome is often classed as a type of brainwashing, and other types of phenomena of people suddenly acting in seemingly irrational ways. And while the name of this syndrome is somewhat recent, the phenomenon has not been uncommon in history. One famous time period which you may have heard about was the American expansion westward, when settlers often women, would be kidnapped by Native American tribes and when rescued, would sometimes escape back to those tribes, showing a great amount of sympathy and like siding with their kidnappers, essentially. This was, at least to the men they fled from, completely irrational behavior. (laughs) And I want to emphasize this concept of perceived irrationality early on before we sort of dig into the episode itself. Um, There's a segment in the book A New History of Humanity by anthropologist David Graeber, which we both read in our fans of, which talks about this specific phenomena. And he brings out a perspective that I think we can put a pin in, which is that if we look at that situation from the perspective of individual women, their behavior becomes a lot more rational mm-hmm. because to them, they maybe see that they have a choice between living in a society where they are the properties of their husbands and living in a society where that's not the case. And suddenly, it makes a lot more sense as to why a lot of people would want to run back. But let's put a pin in that, and let's dig into the famous case, the heist, that actually gave this syndrome its name. And this is gonna read a little bit like it's fan fiction. Like it's, this story is Baldur's crazy. I kind of knew about the story already, but it's more crazy than I initially thought as well. Mm. It, it sounds like it's written for fiction.
1: There's actually, I don't know if you mentioned this, but there's actually a TV show about it. It's called Clark. It's in Swedish and it has one of, uh, I think it's Bill, Bill Skarsgård, mm-hmm. uh, who so plays the main role and it's really good. So mm-hmm. if you want to watch a really good show and hear the guy, everybody everybody's crush speaks Swedish, then uh, that's a really good uh, show to watch.
0: Everybody's crush?
1: A lot of people like him.
0: Oh, really? really? Bill Skarsgård? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see it. Um, I, I will mention it a little bit, but like, and I remember, I remember watching parts of that series when you were watching it. Uh, I was watching you watching it. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you watch a Netflix show and you're like, okay, dramatized for fictional stories. I think they underplayed it. Stockholm Syndrome got its name in 1973 after a failed bank heist in Stockholm, which got a massive amount of media attention. And for good reason. Because the story, as mentioned, is extremely dramatic, and involves famous criminals, the prime minister of Sweden at the time, machine guns, and wigs. You know it's gonna be good shit when that's the case. And this story is wonderfully detailed by the Swedish police in various blogs, websites, and in-person museums, as well as retold in TV shows, movies, and several books, including Clark, but there's also been like two movies, I think. And also, like most everyone who's involved in this case are still alive. It's so, so, I'm gonna oh, it's so, um, oh, (laughs) scrumptious. (laughs) And I'll try to keep the story as short as I can while still doing it justice, which is difficult due to how dramatic it is. The story starts on August 23rd, 1973, when a man named Jan-Erik Olsson walked into the credit bank in Norrmalmstorj in Stockholm, wearing a wig, fake mustache, shoe polish on his cheeks and sunglasses, and introduced himself by shooting a machine gun volley into the ceiling and saying, in English, everybody down, the party begins. (laughs) There's gonna be a lot of Swedish words here because it happened in Stockholm, so you get to hear me speak a little bit of Swedish, but he spoke that in English for some reason.
1: It's kind of a baller thing to say.
0: It is kind of baller, actually. Um, A lot of people involved in this case are kind of baller. He kidnapped three bank clerks, he shot the first cop who got into the bank in the hand, he demanded the equivalent of three million Swedish crowns in foreign currency, a gassed up escape car, two handguns, and the release of his friend, who just happened to be famed Swedish criminal, Clark Olofsson, who is kind of the Swedish equivalent of like Butch Cassidy, like fame, like famous criminal. A person who just does crimes but who is like kind of cool and charming enough to the point where like everyone kind of likes him anyway. uh, Had robbed several banks and he was in jail at the time. So this meme heist, of course, went the funniest way possible, in that the cops, after the government got involved, delivered Clark to the bank along with a Ford Mustang. Why a Ford Mustang? I guess it's a cool getaway car. During this time there were a series of gunfights between John Eric and the police, but things calmed down when Clark got on the scene. But because this was already one of the most memed-up heists in Swedish history, the media were watching everything live at this point. Like, this was one of the most publicized crimes in Swedish history, and it was the first ever crime that was covered live by Swedish media, and this went on for several days. During the heist, Jan Erik held everyone up inside the bank vault, called the Prime Minister, Olaf Palme, And said that he'd kill a hostage unless he got to drive away in the getaway car, which was refused. And then he didn't kill a hostage, anyway. (laughs) According to common hostage negotiation theory, which is apparently a thing, robbers rarely hurt hostages because that's their only bargaining chip.
1: To be fair, he did have four, so I feel like...
0: Yeah, they definitely gambled on that a little bit. Mm. That's gonna come that's gonna come back to be relevant in the nature of this syndrome. During this siege, Olaf Palme, the Prime Minister, also talked to some of the hostages during this time and was berated by one of the hostages, Christine mark for the handling of the situation.
1: I love that she scolded the Prime Minister on the phone.
0: <laughs> she came up blasting too. That was one of the first words she she said. This phone call is so silly, too, because she looked, she's, she sounds so resigned in the mm-hmm. call. She's just like, uh-huh, mm, while talking to the operator. The way, I need to recreate this call a okay. little bit. Okay, okay. They have operators. It's 1973. They have operators. So she picks up the phone. Uh, Hello, operator. I would like to talk to the prime minister. Fun thing to say, first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I'm in the bank that's currently being uh, robbed, uh, and I would like to talk to the prime minister. And they're like, okay, uh, we'll get that to you like five seconds pass and they're like okay he's asleep but he's coming any second and then the prime minister comes on comes on the line he's like oh, oh. <laughs> sounds tired doesn't even take the seriousness of the situation just like there's they're hostages mm-hmm. they have a gun on them <sighs> and this lady is just like you oh, mm-hmm little bit to say you have a little to say I have some things that I want to say. Like very resigned, tired. Like she's talking to the bank.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. She's calling. She's calling uh, Scott
0: Right. Like it's it's a very, it's a very funny conversation. But there is also some mystery here because the full conversation was forty-three minutes long, but twenty minutes are missing. Like vanished from the recording. Spookiest wasn't <laughs> wasn't used in the uh, in the court. Uh, in the court hearings, wasn't used in the trial, wasn't used in the investigations, just missing. And uh, there's some speculation about what was said during that time, which could also give some indication about like how I feel about the validity of the syndrome, for example, but we'll get into that way later. But I need to sort of say that, that it's a mystery that we're going to unravel. But what was said, and it was one of the first things she, she said to uh, Ulf Palme, is also one of the things that have been sort of like brought up as being very typical of like how to describe Stockholm Syndrome in action. And that is the way that she characterizes the situation mm. while she's in the bank here. Like, she, I think this is on day two or three. And this is what she says to the prime minister. Translated into English, of course. Dear sweet darling Olaf I've been a social democrat my entire life. But I beg on my knees that you will solve the situation by calling the police and tell them that they shall release the robber with his money, and Clark, and Elizabeth, and me. Because we are not afraid of them, and then everything will be okay. I am actually disappointed in you. I want to go. There is no one standing here threatening me. And they argue about this a little bit back and forth, which is just very funny. What does he say? I will say that later, but only so that I can round off the series of events that leads up to the syndrome. The second night, the police managed to lock everyone inside the said bank vault when everyone was sleeping. Which is a very weird choice in my mind, because if everyone's asleep, can't you just go in and like take guns? But I don't know. After they were locked in the vault, the cops were like, ah damn, we can't get them now. Go figure. Go figure. So they decided to drill into the vault from above and knock them out with tear gas. It's a bit of a controversy about whether or not it's tear gas or like some type of knockout gas. All sorry was a knockout gas, not necessarily just tear gas. But they but but the police refer to tear gas, but that might be because of reasons. So they were drilling into the vault from above, but as any good leftist knows, you can defeat tear gas and drills with a good sounding argument. And Jan-Erik had perhaps the most convincing argument a person can have, a bomb, specifically dynamite, which he used to knock out the drill. And this led to more gunfights between the robbers on one side and the cops on the other, literally shooting down like a drill hole, which is, I think is very, again, very unserious.
1: But how how did he knock out the drill? Did he
0: like throw it upwards? Kind of. <laughs> the dynamite? Like in the hole, yeah.
1: This is literally like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Yes.
0: Like dynamite. Who uses dynamite? I get, this dude. Who shoots like like this a dude hole wasn't... in the
1: ceiling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they also wanted to... Um... They wanted to see what it was looking like inside the vault, right? Mm-hmm. Because they didn't have eyes on it. So they kind of like stuck down like a big camera contraption too and took a picture. Like it's so unserious.
1: Like one it, of those uh, camera contraptions people people have on... Um, I don't know if you've ever seen those cartoons where there's like a submarine and they like stick it out the submarine to look on the like surface of the water.
0: <laughs> yeah, like like, like a kind of a periscope.
1: <laughs> Is it called a periscope?
0: Yeah. Oh my god. And there's also, like, because you can see the hostages, and I think Clark Olofsson, looking at the contraption, which is like, (laughs) with a very confused look on their face, just like, what the fuck is that? (laughs) Again, very, very silly. The robbers also tied up the hostages with nooses. I was wondering a little bit about about what the plural of noose is. Nice? Yeah,
1: it's noose. for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They
0: tied up the hostages with nice, one each, and... With the implied threat of, if you pour gas in here, like, people are gonna die. Mm. Um, they also strapped dynamite, like, remaining dynamite, also to themselves and to the hostages. So it's like, but also, you're in a bank vault. Like, if a dynamite goes off in the bank vault, you're dead. They're all dead. Like, it's a bank vault. But, eventually, the cops just decided to say, fuck it. We'll just pour, pump gas in. Uh, which they did. And they managed to get everyone up with no injuries. And then, that, that's how they sequence of events ended. Which is a traumatic event, no doubt. But after the situation was resolved, the hostages exhibited some interesting behavior in that they did not want to testify against their captors and had criticisms of the police, with one hostage in particular actually starting a defense fund for one of the hostage takers. No doubt, you may say, irrational strange behavior. To explain this phenomena, the on-site psychologist who assisted with hostage negotiations during the heist, a man called Nils Bejeroth, coined the term story syndromet to describe what he saw as the psychological phenomena of hostages maximizing their survival chances by ingratiating themselves with their captors. However, this was international news and no one knows what the fuck normalm is, outside of Stockholm anyway, so international media renamed it to Stockholm syndrome. And that is how you get the name Stockholm Syndrome and why it exists. And if you're listening to this thinking, hold on, isn't there more to this story? There sure is. But before we do that, we need to talk a little bit about another case that has perpetuated the label of Stockholm Syndrome and made it not just apply to this one specific case. And that's my cue to leave over to you.
1: Yay, get to talk about history also.
0: That also rare
1: also ran, Fun, right? Um, okay, so the other notable instance of Socom Syndrome, allegedly, is the case of Patricia, otherwise known as Patty Hearst. She is often referred to as Patty, but she said multiple times that she actually prefers to be called Patricia, so I'll try to refer to her as Patricia. I don't know why everybody calls her Patty. <laughs> she said she doesn't like it. Um, anyway, she is or she was a newspaper, who was kidnapped in 1974 by the Symbionese Liberation Army, otherwise known as SLA. The SLA was a small American leftist militant organization that was composed of people who met during prisoner outreach programs, primarily white college student activists and inmates. Led by Donald Defries, the organization embraced Marxist, Black nationalist, and feminist principles, and believed that armed resistance was the only way to bring down fascism, capitalism, and racism in the United States. They also had a pretty cool motto. Um, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, it's kind of cool.
0: I, first of all, we before everyone starts typing "based" in the comments of this uh, of this podcast episode, they are classed as a terrorist organization. Yeah. So yeah. Just so, so you know that, just, like, just so you know. Just everyone knows Watch that. Out.
1: Um, anyway, their motto was Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. <laughs> it's
0: pretty good. The fascist insect. That's pretty good. Very pretty good.
1: <laughs> they also, their, um, their logo was a seven headed snake, a uh, cobra, I think. Oh, wow. In any case, on February 4th, 1974, three members of the group forced their way into the apartment of 19 year old Hearst and her fiancé, who, by the way, this is not a super important detail. But it is maybe a little bit important. They got together when she was sixteen and he was oh. twenty-three. Ah. And her math teacher in ah. high school. Wee wee wee. Little bit sketch. So um, they broke into her apartment and abducted her, and also broke a wine glass on the or a wine bottle on the fiance. Um, but they left him behind. He was broke important. a wine
0: bottle on the fiance.
1: Her kidnapping made headlines across the country with both local police and the FBI searching for the missing girl. That's how you know your family is powerful if the <laughs> FBI gets involved.
0: That's how That's how you know she's white.
1: White and rich. Mm-hmm. Her kidnapping was partly opportunistic because she lived close to the SLA headquarters. But it's convenient. Group, it's, it was kind of convenient. But the group also knew who she was, and they intended to use her family's political influence to free two other SLA members that had been arrested previously. According to Hearst's testimony, at her trial, she was uh, blindfolded and held in a closet for a week following her abduction, was repeatedly threatened with death by the De Freeze, and was also sexually assaulted by both the Freeze and another member of the group. Eventually, she was allowed to leave the closet. And participate in the group's political discussions and was given a choice between being killed or joining the SLA. She, maybe unsurprisingly, elected to join the organization and began.
0: Big, big shock. Big shock. That weird, weird choice.
1: <laughs> and began to take part in their military drills. She was taught how to use a weapon and started adapting her beliefs to those of the group. Shortly after her abduction, the made a public demand that the Hearst family start a food distribution program for the poor people in the area, which they did. Specifically, the plan was to feed 100,000 people over the course of 12 months with $2 million. Initially, the SLA demanded $6 million, which the Hearst family refused, which led Patricia to uh, be very upset and criticize her family by saying, I don't believe they're doing anything at all. And later on, it was a horrible feeling that my parents could think of me in terms of dollars and cents. She also referred to her family as the pig Hursts and to her fiancé as an ageist, sexist pig.
0: Based, 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 based.
1: (laughs) Girl was seeing the light a little bit.
0: Also, like, it's not an unreasonable criticism on, on, on the part of Patricia being like, why two? Why? Why do you draw? Where's yeah. the line between two yeah. and six million? Like yeah, that was why? her
1: criticism that they were kind of like uh, haggling, you know? Yeah,
0: like why are you haggling? <clears throat> they're rich as fuck. Like why are you haggling about four? And million her life
1: about- is on the line. Yeah,
0: like what are you? What are you? What are you doing?
1: <laughs> yeah, two months after being abducted, Hurst, who started going by Tanya, was recorded on a bank's surveillance video holding an M1 carbine. She yelled, "I'm Tanya! Up, up!" Up against the wall, motherfuckers. (laughs) Um, So, very different person. Mm. The nature of her involvement in SLA became more unclear after people saw her do that. Some people suggesting that she was a willing participant, while others noting that other SLA members were seen pointing guns at her during the robbery. This detail is actually not fully clear, because she also denies that happened. And in, in the pictures, it's not super clear if that's the case or not. So it's it's actually unknown if that's what was happening in that moment.
0: If there is one thing that I also saw a lot, like, reading about the bank heist in Stockholm, for example, it is that a lot of times people who come into a situation with, like, a preconceived notion will see the same thing but come out with radically different interpretations of that thing. Mm. So, like, people wave a gun or people Like, you know, people wave guns around... And if, you, if, you were, if you're like, of course she's brainwashed, like she wouldn't do this, so they see that as like, oh, well, they're pointing guns. And then if you're like, she's a willing participant, they just see that as like me and like a gun mm. way, being waved mm. around, uh, even though they're looking at the exact same thing. so That's fair. It, it's It sucks that this is also like how the legal system entirely operates, but that's, you know.
1: She was later involved in a few other robberies and hijackings, one of which led to the SLA base being surrounded by the police and six members of the organization dying during the shootout which was basically half of their <laughs> members they were like a dozen people
0: i love how they have a headquarters
1: it was one person's house that they <laughs> all like um hidden i just think it sounds a bit more
0: <laughs> yeah
1: more fishy. they actually ho- they mostly call it a hideout
0: and that, that's probably a bit more fair. i cuz when when i hear the word headquarters i'm imagining like a big like building with like the logo on top <laughs> you got no. like an address on google maps
1: do you know actually the reason it took so long for them to get caught is because they were so small and so isolated and they had no connections to other groups or organizations at all um so that's you do it autonomous that's how, that's how you do it
0: and guess cookbooks says the exact same thing you gotta be you gotta be decentralized you gotta be disconnected
1: <laughs> um take that
0: tip I, I, I keep talking like this, why I'm are gonna... you
1: giving them tips about how to be a terrorist organization yeah <laughs> Hearst was arrested in 1975, approximately two years after her abduction, and immediately after being arrested, she asked her attorney to convey the message, tell everybody that I'm smiling, that I feel free and strong, and I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. However, following some weeks in custody, Hearst denounced her SLA allegiance. Her lawyers first advocated for a defense of involuntary intoxication, that the SLA had given her drugs that impaired her judgment, and later for a defense of coercion. So they also changed their strategy a bit. Mm. During the trial, she claimed that her captors demanded that she appear enthusiastic during the robberies and that her actions reflected cloudy judgment. Specifically during one instance when she had the opportunity to escape, she, and I quote, didn't think, I just did it, and if I had not done it, and if they had been able to get away, they would have killed me. Ultimately, she was convicted of bank robbery and using a firearm and was given seven years imprisonment, of which she served 22 months as her sentence was commuted by Jimmy Carter. Eventually, she was also just fully pardoned by Bill Clinton. Uh, There's a lot of pictures of her smiling happily, um, you know, after getting released.
0: Yeah, and I guess the difficulty then is like knowing whether or not she she was like... If she was a diehard believer or had yeah. stopped being a diehard believer. <clears throat> or if she was fully coerced the entire time like you, like she eventually yeah. claimed. Or if she was and maybe continued to be a diehard believer. But just like, I can probably like get out of prison quicker if I just say I don't.
1: Yeah, it's really hard. And this is kind of how I wanted to like round off this mm. section. So this case, just like the, the bank robbery that happened in Stockholm is really complex, and it's too complex to reduce her actions to just a temporary survival strategy. Maybe, like you say, maybe she was acting under duress, maybe she was a very impressionable young person, but maybe she also generally connected to the organization's message. Maybe she felt empowered by the methods, you know, it feels very empowering to learn how to shoot a gun and like feel like you're making a difference in the world. And maybe she thought that her immense privilege... Would have protected her from the consequences, which she was right about. Like she got pardoned twice by two like separate presidents,
0: oh, commuted and commuted, then commuted,
1: commuted and then pardoned. But like,
0: but still, that's pretty. Like I was about to say that. Like they don't se- they don't those people like that anymore. Like if you do if you do that kind of stuff, like now you're never getting out of jail.
1: <laughs> like mean, because like also okay, in but- the
0: norm- also in the Stockholm robbery, like a lot, like a lot of them like they, they took four people hostage, to threaten to kill people. The guy shot two two cops they also got like very short prison sentences
1: anyway most likely it was a mix of factors coupled with a healthy dose of fear so while slapping Stockholm syndrome over a kidnapping case is really easy and seems like it makes sense in theory it might not always be the whole story So now that we've talked about the history of the term, and honestly, I feel like at this point, you, the audience can kind of guess our opinion on what, the syndrome that we call Stockholm syndrome. I do want to talk about some proposed psychiatric theories that underlie this phenomenon. Specifically, I want to talk about fear. What is fear? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um,
0: Tell me, slave boy. <laughs> Classic ongoing book podcast is the...
1: Tell me, slave boy. Yeah. So fear is a primary emotional feeling, meaning that it's hardwired in the limbic system, specifically in the amygdala, and is shared by all vertebrates. This is because fear has been essential to survival as it underlies self-preservation strategies. We are scared of something, so we're going to avoid it, and we're going to do everything we can to get away from it Mm -hmm. if we need to. Um, Like snakes. What? (laughs)
0: Humans are humans are like genetically coded to be like a little bit afraid of snakes. Yeah, I, that, guess, that, that, that's, I guess that is an that's example. That's from when we were monkey. What,
1: what we were, what we are afraid of. Because
0: um, that's because it's not like a it's not a learned fear. You can live in a place where you have where you don't encounter snakes, or a place where you have grown up with sna- snakes. do not matter. Everyone is going to have like a little bit of a thing about snakes. Yeah, I think that's cool.
1: Yes. So. The ability to feel fear and the the feeling of fear is highly conserved among species. Like, all animals with a nervous system are afraid, feel fear. Mm. Similarly, defense strategies are also conserved, as all living beings are subjected to similar evolutionary pressures like predators and intraspecies competition.
0: This makes me think though, like, how 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 does that affect like apex predators, for example?
1: Of course, apex predators don't have are not afraid of other predators, but there's also interspecies competition. Oh
0: yeah, you said that, of course.
1: Um, they are afraid of members of the same species mm. that they compete with for resources and also the environment. Mm. It, I don't mention the environment here, but harsh environment conditions are also something that animals any animal is afraid of. That's fair. Um, but I do want to mention that the complexity of the strategies. That are applied in a situation of crisis is proportional to the complexity of animals of the animal. So all like animals, all animals with a nervous system feel fear, and there are some basic defense mechanisms that are conserved, but um, they don't apply to all of them. A fish is not gonna have anxiety. Have anxiety, exactly.
0: <laughs> you teach a man to fish,
1: <laughs> but you teach he... a fish to have anxiety. <laughs>
0: You teach a man to fish, he will be fed for a day, but you teach a fish to man, and that fish is going to have a, a lifetime crippling addiction to paperwork.
1: Yes, so in the face of a real or possible threat, animals may revert to six strategies, including avoidance of threats. That's the first thing that you got to do. You just, just don't. 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 <laughs> um, if
0: interact with thing, no.
1: <laughs> Attentive immobility, also known as freeze, which is defined as freezing... As a prelude to more definitive action. Mm.
0: Withdrawal. I, I, and, and I heard a really good way to sort of like rational, like, because when you hear like we, me, for example, who don't know shit about biology, when you hear like freeze as a survival instinct, that's like, that's weird. That's stupid. But the way I've heard it described that made it made, made make sense to me. And I'm sorry I'm interrupting, but like it, it really clarified it, How this you? concept for me was that like, it's basically your body doing stop whatever the fuck you're doing. We need to solve this now. Yeah. Like, don't think about TikTok. Don't think about, like, homework. Problem. (laughs) Problem.
1: That's a good way to explain it. Um, Then there's withdrawal, which is flight. Then there's aggressive defense, fight. And tonic immobility, which is different from freeze in that it is not a temporary solution to be followed by another action, but it's, like, the final defense right before you're about to get eaten. Mm. You... It's, it's, it can be like playing dead. Mm. So that's like the very last thing that you can do is maybe you can get the predators to, to feel grossed out. Because mm. they think you're dead and maybe you're like not not good to eat.
0: I have heard it can make you shit yourself. Maybe for the same reason.
1: <laughs> I haven't heard of that one. Anyway, the last defense mechanism is appeasement. And this is the one that I want to talk about. So, while the first strategies are relatively straightforward and make sense in the context of a predator prey interaction, appeasement is primarily used in the context of intraspecies conflict and is particularly relevant to social animals that form hierarchical groups. Or oh, like us. Like us, or primates. Appeasement is a relevant survival strategy as it serves to de escalate the situation. With, you know, if bears chasing you, you're not really trying to de-escalate, you're trying to get away.
0: I'm gonna uh, sympathize <laughs> with the bear, adopt the bear's motives and ideology, <laughs> Understand and join the forces bear. with the bear, <laughs> and together we will raid the garbage can.
1: <laughs> yeah, but when you are part of a social group and you are trying to maintain like positive relationships with them and not like, fuck with the social hierarchy... Then appeasement is a is a good way to solve conflicts. Um,
0: you are very you're saying really smart things, and it is really good. There's just my mind has a hard time not imagining two banks holding a uh, two two bears holding up a bank, <laughs> and like people sympathizing with the bears. Imagine a bear walking into a bank, shooting a shot, shooting a machine gun in the ceiling, and saying. Rarrr, rarrr, rarrr.
1: <laughs> I don't think they need the shotgun. They're bears.
0: That's true, but can you imagine how scary it would be to see a bear <laughs> with a machine gun?
1: This behavior of appeasement has been observed in primates. When attacked by dominant herd members, chimpanzees return to the attacker rather than seeking comfort from other group members. This is because if the defeated chimp turned to other group members, the winning chimp might interpret this as enlisting help for future uprisings Mm -hmm. and might retaliate. Therefore, the only acceptable source of comfort is the attacker who then serves the role of both the punisher and the source of safety. So I thought that was very interesting that you can see that in animals as well.
0: Yeah, that is that is quite quite uh, quite interesting. Quite interesting. It's scary how chimps are so similar to us. <laughs> I live in fear for the day that they start making like advanced tools.
1: Oh my god! Do you know what I saw when I uh, the tangent? Tangent.
0: Oh, I have so many tangents coming up
1: tangent later. So sure, time. Tangent sure. Tangent time. When I went to Rome, I also visited the zoo because I love to go to the zoo. I love seeing animals. Animals make me happy. It makes my day. It makes my week. It makes my month.
0: Literally every time we travel to a new city, we go to the zoo.
1: And I saw chimps and I don't know if that is a real phenomenon, but both my friend and I saw the chimp hold up its palm and make a scrolling life-like movement
0: no, I, I, I have seen from movies that predate smartphones, but like by just a smidge, that like they do a lot of like hand movements within the species, so it could be something like that. However, it's not unreasonable to assume that it's just seen tons of people on smartphones and be like, "That's what, what I, is f- this? I mean." There's are, uh, this seems fun.
1: They are they're smart enough where them mimicking mimicking humans would not be out of the question. Exactly um i haven't i don't know anything about the hand movements maybe it's something else but that was kind of crazy that's kind of crazy
0: the only reason why i am somewhat skeptical that it's mimicry is because like they are definitely smart enough to mimic Mm -hmm. but i feel like they're also smart enough to be like this sucks (laughs) i don't have a phone (laughs) like i'm i'm not getting anything out of it. i'm swiping my hand i'm not getting anything (laughs) Like okay i don't know try that one
1: Maybe it was the first time that monkey did it. Maybe. <laughs> and then after that, they were like... Mm. If
0: you're like a zoologist of some sort and you know of this behavior, please let us know. Please let us Because this is like a legitimately curious thing that I would love to know about.
1: That blew my mind. I learned so many interesting things about animals in Rome. Can I say another thing? Sure. Fuck it. They were... I've never seen more photogenic animals in my life. <laughs> like, I would go up it's to take Italian, a picture and they would come closer.
0: It's supposed to have olive oil in the food. <laughs> What? It's because they have olive oil in their food. What do you mean? (laughs) Because they're Italians. Mamma mia.
1: I just mean they were very, like, willing to be photographed. (laughs) Not that they were necessarily, you know... I mean, they did look good in pictures, but they also, like... They were posing. They were fucking posing. Mm. They were working it. it
0: Reflecting, I think, Italian culture a little bit. Compared to Swedish zoo animals, which will not in look at you underground and, hide and like look at you like you're bothering them. <laughs>
1: um yeah. let's let's get back to the to the episode. So, it is interesting to notice this behavior in primates and while of course it's not like a one to one ratio Comparative psychology can offer some interesting insight into human psychology as well. Mm. The common belief is that what we call Stockholm Syndrome is an example of a trauma response in which hostages develop positive feelings towards their captors as a way to survive threats and later cope with the lived traumatic experience. And the syndrome forms following four conditions. One, the perceived threat to one's physical or psychological survival at the hands of the abuser. 2. Perceived small kindnesses from the abuser, 3. Isolation from the outside world and perspectives other than that of the abuser, and 4. The inescapability of the situation. And the development of the syndrome is explained as follows. The offender threatens the survival of the victim. The victim is unable to escape, is isolated from others, so they turn to the offender for protection. The need for protection combined with the will to survive leads to the victim seeking for expressions of kindness and empathy from the offender. The victim suppresses any feelings of danger or fear and bonds with the positive side of the offender. The victim also suppresses their own needs and becomes hyper-vigilant of the oppressor's needs, feelings, and perspectives, which also leads to the victim seeing the world through the perspective of the offender. Through this process, the victim starts to view outsiders and would-be rescuers as Bad guys, because that is the offender's perspective. Another way to understand appeasement behavior displayed by people with Stockholm Syndrome is through polyvagal theory. I will say, before I go into details about it, this is not an established theory and it has received some criticism for oversimplifying heterogeneous emotions, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, But in any case, the theory suggests that when faced with a life threat, The foundational survival circuits originating in the brainstem, in the the lizard brain, Mm -hmm. take over, moving the nervous system into a defensive state that overrides all rational behavior and rational social interactions. Therefore, this way of understanding appeasement suggests that when faced with a life threat, victims may unconsciously express features of calmness, interest, and social engagement, in order to defuse the agitated state of the attacker. The polyvagal theory is believed to be especially useful when developing therapeutic approaches. Um, after all, it can be really confusing and dysregulating to believe that, you know, you built a genuine, um, although unrequited connection with the capture, and it can lead to feelings of shame and fervor vulnerability. It can be similarly confusing for family members, and supporters to believe that the victim did not escape or collaborate with law enforcers even if they had the chance, which can prevent families and friends to be actually actively supportive of the victim, which is of course also crucial for treatment. So it can be very attractive to reframe appeasement behaviors as an unconscious process in the face of life-threatening conditions. In saying this, Stockholm Syndrome as a diagnosis is still very vague, and human dynamics are too complicated to reduce every case in which a person develops positive feelings towards a captor and starts sympathizing with the mission as a simple survival strategy. While it can be a relevant starting point, Stockholm Syndrome may not be an accurate diagnosis for every person who is kidnapped. And by the way, it's not an actual medical diagnosis, it's a... It's a state or a a survival mechanism, let's say. And maybe our understanding of victims' behaviors is still too immature and or human psychology is too complex to assign a one-size-fits-all diagnosis to this kind of paradoxical behavior. You, Mia, have some more thoughts on the matter. I know you are very passionate about this topic. (laughs) Uh, I'm not passionate.
0: <laughs> I have a firm opinion.
1: You you've been developing a very firm opinion over the past three days, and I can't wait to hear it. Thank you.
0: Now I do have quite a firm opinion <laughs> on this, because there's a little bit of controversy regarding the validity of the label Stockholm syndrome, because what. The term Stockholm Syndrome means it's a little uh, loosey-goosey depending on who's who's doing the defining. <laughs> so, believe it or not, I have named my section Controversy, <laughs> because I like controversy. But, let's make some things clear before I go too, too deep, and that is that there are, of course, multiple psychological phenomena that exist and are perfectly valid and that are Not unreasonable to expect people to develop in traumatic situations, for example. Mm. And they are definitely real. And and I don't want to imply that they aren't in that sense. Mm. So, misunderstand me correctly, as one might say. when, When I say that I don't really believe personally that Stockholm Syndrome is like a medical syndrome that causes people to behave in certain ways. And i have a few reasons for why this is but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's nothing at all going on here because as i said like the psychological phenomena are definitely real and there could be some common factors you'll see what i talk about as we dig into this and i think the easiest way to dig into the controversy here is to re-examine the case that gave stockholm syndrome its name to sort of like close the loop and sort of return a little bit. You've touched a little bit on this as well, talking about Patricia uh, Hurst, because there are similar gray areas here. First of all, as you also mentioned, Stockholm syndrome is not a recognized medical condition. It has no diagnostic criteria. It is not part of the DSM, at least the dsm 4 I haven't been able to check dsm 5 but I don't think it's part of that either. However, that does not necessarily mean anything at all, because there are many psychological conditions that are not in the DSM and that don't have diagnostic criteria, but that still exist just as subtypes of other types of labels. There are multiple types of trauma uh, responses that are labeled as subtypes of PTSD, for example, and not each and every one of them has its own diagnostic criteria and they're not all part of the DSM. So that's a common criticism of Stockholm Syndrome, and I also wanted to point that way, it's a bad criticism. Hmm.
1: Yeah, the, we've complained about the DSM in the past. I fuck the we, DSM. Yeah, so we don't we don't we don't take the the DSM as a no all <laughs> end all be all of uh, mental illness.
0: And yet, there are so many therapists that do. <laughs> I fucking hate the DSM. I studied psychology uh, for one term in uni, and it was like. They follow that shit like it's the Bible. Mm. Like everyone has an own copy that they carry with them. I had to buy my own mini version so I could keep it like on my person at all times because everyone did. And they just like follow up everything. And you're just like, mm, gender identity disorder is classified. Then, baby, me, 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 me. Has four subtypes depending on what sexuality you have. Pfft, stupid. <laughs> Do you know what's
1: really funny though? What? When you walk into your new therapist's office and the DSM is like like face down, open right in the middle on their, on their um, desk.
0: You take a peek on where it is and it's just like, ah, my disorders. <laughs> Needed to have a little refresher. Yeah, the, had to, had the had the to psych- refresh your memory a little bit. <laughs> in the psychological con- uh, equivalent of the dictionary. God, I hate the DSM. This podcast hates the DSM. Anyway.
1: Also, I feel like... I, okay, I don't know if you agree, but I feel like consulting the DSM before you see your patient is kind of like just Googling bones if you're a doctor, going to the Wikipedia page of bones.
0: I would, I would think that the equivalent is that like when we edit video and we sort of Google how to do one thing and it's like, yeah, anyone can Google how to do that one thing, right? But we have to use that sort of like piece of knowledge and put that in like in a larger set of knowledge. So that we can like use it in context. I would. That's how I would like to believe how it is. Do because you, if not, what the fuck do, is medical school for?
1: Do you know what I? Uh, I just remembered. Uh Oh. <laughs> do you remember how I caught to Google socialism? Was?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's for. It's for. That was the funniest shit. I think it's for my upcoming video. Even I. I. I yeah, went to the Oxford English. <laughs> no, just Google.com socialism. What is socialism? <laughs> I mean, like, because, like, sometimes, because you know, but sometimes you want to double check, like, a
1: No, but I do. I do that, too. I do that, too. Sometimes I will, because, like, you learn something so long ago, Mm -hmm. and then you take it for granted for so long. Sometimes I do go, and I Google, like, wait, what's a protein? Sometimes you just, like,
0: because sometimes you think you know, and then you find out, you misremember, like, a detail of it, and you're like,
1: (gasps) Or it's just, I don't know, you build so much knowledge on something that you take for granted that you know. Anyway, sometimes you just need to, like...
0: You know, rebuilt that foundation. <laughs> anyway, speaking of potentially pulling things out of your ass, um, let's also talk about how Stockholm Syndrome was coined. Stockholm Syndrome was not coined after meticulous study in institutionalized medical science to describe like a series of patients or a set type of characteristics, but it was named to describe one singular event and it was coined by one person to describe that event, which means that the label becomes... I mean, the the label is perfect because it applies to this one case, but that also means it's kind of difficult to use in any other case. But even in this case, there could be issues. There's a common argument when it comes to criticism against Stockholm Syndrome, which is that mass media publications use Stockholm Syndrome as a bit of an excuse or as a catch-all term to explain the actions and behaviors of hostages generally. And there are a few, there are a few studies about Stockholm Syndrome in general, it's not a super well examined condition, uh, but the ones that do exist kind of all point out the fact that Stockholm Syndrome is mostly a term used by newspapers and media publications. It's not really used in academic circles. And according to this theory of criticism, The syndrome exists only as a way for the wider world to explain away seemingly irrational behavior or opinions. So the meta-analysis from 2008 called Stockholm Syndrome, psychiatric diagnosis or urban myth, uh, pointed out that the term Stockholm Syndrome is rarely used, like I just mentioned, and that it does not refer to any specific set of psychological conditions. The conditions exist, but every case that uses the word Stockholm Syndrome is using it to refer to a condition but when you take, like, multiple instances of the label Stockholm Syndrome, you can have, like, the, the, the conditions have nothing to do with each other. Mm. Like, you will have people who stay in a work setting where they're unhappy for a long time, and they, like, a people will call that Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, and then you'll have another one where it's, like, a person who won't leave their abusive husband um, and call that Stockholm Syndrome. But those two phenomenon have nothing to do with each other, basically. There are very, very few overlaps, and the psychological conditions underlying those conditions are even more complicated. But they're very distinct conditions. So then the question is, what does Stockholm syndrome refer to? Some thinkers argue Stockholm syndrome exists as a result of a vernacular quirk, and it should be written about in that sense rather than in psychological terms. And that is because the syndrome is often used by media in the context of situation where we have a very formulaic understanding, which is kidnappings and robberies. Like, everyone kind of knows how a kidnapping and a robbery goes. Um, There's a story that we sort of expect to be told when we hear about a bank heist. As a society, we understand a hostage situation as a series of set events and roles. The kidnapper or robber is the villain, the hostages are innocent victims, and the cops are the heroic rescuers. Of course, ACAB. But most people in society, like normies, they're still gonna like expect cops to come and rescue them in case they're being kidnapped in a bank heist. And within that context, it makes absolutely no sense for victims, the innocent, uh, darling uh, victims, to sympathize with the villain kidnappers or hostage takers after the events in question, which leads us to try to find an answer, and thus... Stockholm syndrome exists as a solution for us to make sense of that situation. It is making people act irrationally, except that is only the reality when it comes to newsprint and storytelling after the fact and for the world reading about those individual stories. It's not the reality of the hostages when they are in the room with the kidnappers as it's going on. In those situations, Hostages can often hear about the motivations behind the villain's actions leading to quite rational sympathy. I remember there was a, also like a Swedish Netflix show about a person who took a bunch of hostages during an apartment viewing. And spoilers for that show, I don't remember. It's, it's called Anxious People, I think. Yeah. So spoilers for that. Because that is also technically, I think, a case of Stockholm Syndrome. The, the kidnapper was a person, was a homeless person, a homeless woman who was trying to find a way to get a, a permanent place to stay so that, so that she could be reunited with her children. If hostages are told that story, a lot of them are going to be sympathetic to to that narrative. Mm. And that's a reasonable thing to, to be sympathetic towards. It's, and that's, you don't need to have a, a syndrome that's making you feel that way. Like, anyone can feel that way. And the reality is also very different than expected when the police, whose society expects to be heroic, fuck up their jobs so bad that hostages feel like they're in more danger by police actions. Like, for example, hostages feeling like the police are shooting carelessly in their direction. And that causes distrust against the police. Cops making mistakes? It's more (laughs) likely than you think. And this is probably what happened during the bank heist which coined the term in 1973. Because there are a few things those proud police museums won't tell you. First off, this was a meme heist of highest proportions involving famous robbers who by all accounts were charming as hell. Especially Clark Olofsson. And speaking of Clark, I gotta do a quick aside about Clark here. Because his personality is kind of relevant in this case. Because he is a legend in Swedish crime history. He has multiple movies made about him. And he kept doing crimes after this heist. <laughs> there, are, there are myths going around that he negotiated with the police. That, like, he would only go to the bank if he got, like, 10 years knocked off his sentence at the time. But then there are, like, theories about, like, but what if he planned the heist with the guy when they Mm -hmm. knew each other in prison so that he could do that negotiation tactic and get 10 years knocked off his own sentence. But, like, after that happened, he got out. He did more crimes. Got back in jail. He got out for those crimes. And then he kept doing crimes. He was smuggling weed as late as 2008. Dude's 77 years old right now, by the way. And as late as two years ago, he said in an interview that he might go back to doing crimes.
1: I love that he's announcing it. He he very much said he's it in letting a very casual ev- way. Like, I might
0: do it. I might return.
1: Yeah, he's letting everyone know.
0: He is unbothered, relaxed. He's N- in his element. Moisturized. Moisturized. <laughs> um, there are also he has also claimed that he managed to like smuggle out like. Several tens of thousands of Swedish crowns from the bank vault in his ass. Yeah, I remember Wait. the
1: show. The show actually does include that.
0: Oh, it does. Yeah, wonderful. But him, the legend, apparently entering the bank has been described by the hostages after the fact as the event that calmed them down the most because he was very charming. He was not the one who had shot a machine gun, right? That was the other. That was the other guy. He calmed down the cops because the cops had brought him there, and he calmed down John Eric because he knew him. And he generally just relaxed the vibe, Mm. which then of course you're going to be like, oh yeah there's a there's a tense situation and then here comes this guy who's making everything nicer. Thank you guy, I appreciate that. And this is relevant because secondly the vibe was horrid. Statements differ, but the hostages claim that when police arrived at the scene the police drew and possibly fired their weapons first and that Jan Erik fired back at the police which goes in contrast with what the police were saying, that he was firing at the police and then the police fired Mm. in self-defense. Many of the hostages felt that the police were firing carelessly with great risk of hitting them and Christine, the woman on the phone with Olof Palme, began arguing with Palme about this on the phone. So going back to that recording, they say this, Palme says, defending himself against like, like this first criticism from Christine. Well, imagine the situation they fired at police Christine interrupts him interrupts the prime minister like no uh-uh, no 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 here i have to say this one i must say the police drew their weapons first palme the prime minister replies whatever either way it doesn't matter whatever thanks thanks for the thanks for the confidence prime minister who's mm. who's involved himself in this police heist that saying eh what it doesn't matter okay fuck you never never voting social democrat again i guess
1: Switching over to the moderates.
0: And Christine, who had this conversation, was the most vocal of hostages in her criticism of the police handling of the situation. And she was also the one speaking on behalf of the hostages in negotiation with the police and with Palma. Her main concern was apparently a fear that the police would storm the vault and that the hostages could be killed in a crossfire. Or by gas, which has killed hostages and is not non-lethal. Like, people talk about, like, knockout gas as being like, oh, it's a safe, non-lethal way to kill people. No. If it can make you unconscious, it can kill you.
1: I'm very curious what kind of knockout gas you're talking about.
0: I had a hard time finding specifics looks, about
1: this. What's the gas? What's the gas name?
0: I don't It's a weird gas. I don't know. It's a weird gas. But, like, it's a reasonable thing also to just be like, you can't just Carbon fill the vault with, like, gas. It's... That's not safe. Yeah. Like, you might kill us. Mm. And that's a reasonable criticism. She instead argued that they should be let go. The robber should be let go in the escape car with the hostages because then they could be let go somewhere on a country road without risking a gunfight. Again, sounds extraordinarily rational. And this was not allowed by Palma. Palma said, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, we can't let morons like that on the road, he said. And adding to this, which is a crucial piece of information, which was not even revealed to the public until 2003, or at least confirmed to the public until 2003, was that during those missing 20 minutes of phone conversation, Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme allegedly said that dying in the line of duty could be seen as a comfort, Mm.
1: could be nice,
0: (laughs) which is a deranged thing to say to a bank clerk.
1: Have you considered dying? Have you considered making our job easier and just like <laughs> killing over?
0: I understand that you're afraid of dying to the police storming the vault, but have you considered it might be nice?
1: <laughs> what are you talking? What, th- what? <laughs> what? Nah, bitch, I want to live.
0: <laughs> and this was not known until 2003 uh, when it was confirmed by like some higher up people in the police who were retiring and were out of fucks to give, I guess. But it fits perfectly within what Christine had claimed after the fact. Because when she said this immediately after, people were like, "No, he didn't." That's mm. the prime minister would never say such a thing. Oop, oop. <laughs> uh, but, oop, it, oop. Oop. but it fits perfectly with what she said, and she even refers back to that statement unprompted in the part of the recording that wasn't lost. This is a quote from her again, around the end of their conversation. Elizabeth says that there are plenty of dead heroes. I don't want to be some dead hero. Why would she say that, if she if hadn't, like, for no reason? Mm. So that's a fair number of rational reasons for why maybe the hostages weren't the biggest fans of the police and the government. The Swedish police website makes absolutely zero mention of Stockholm Syndrome, or the fact that the hostages had any criticism of them at all, making it seem like another perfect police action by the police. And if there was ever another reason to say it, cops lie, ACAB, hey fuck em. They also conveniently don't mention that they got the name of the robber wrong. In the initial police investigations, they were like calling him by the wrong name. And they were like, who... Perfect. Wait, are you talking to me? Well, who are you talking to? <laughs> like, you don't even know who's robbing the bank? And let's not forget about Nils, the psychologist who actually coined the term, and whether or not he was bullshitting or not. When he coined the term, Norman Tolls syndrome, which was later than Stockholm syndrome, he had never actually met with any of the hostages. Like, this is not him coming to a conclusion after interviews. This is him coming up with, a what well, in his mind, a reasonable answer for why they have the opinions that they do. But I also do want to quickly mention a bit more about Nils, because I have personal beef with him, weirdly oh. enough, for a completely unrelated reason. So if you listen to previous episodes of the podcast where we talk about narcotics, you may know that Sweden has like a weirdly backwards narcotics policy. Like, we're weirdly restrictive even... about it.
1: Don't even get me started.
0: But like we're one of, we have one of the most restrictive drug policies in Europe, and currently, as time of recording, we have the highest drug mortality in, of every European country. Great job. Uh, anyway, that's that's me. I'm a bit more of a liberal on the drug Fun fact:
1: policy. you need a doctor' prescription to get uh, Narcan. It's uh, it's not over the counter, and um, it's hard as
0: fuck to get a doctor' prescription for it. Apparently, too.
1: But also, like, I mean, it makes no fucking sense. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's a whole, that's a whole another thing.
0: A lot of firefighters also don't have Narcan. Cops also, a lot of cops also don't have Narcan. Because it's not... If you have a medical
1: emergency because of drugs and you call the emergency number, they will send cops and not EMTs. Yes. So, um, take that (laughs) as you will.
0: Mm -hmm. Unrelated. But it's because of this that I have beef with him. He is one of the reasons why Sweden has like a pretty restrictive drug policy. He thought that drugs are a egoistic liberal luxury and that it should be treated in that sense. And that the best way to treat an, like a luxury is to restrict it as much as possible. And he... I mentioned that he believed it was a liberal luxury. It's because he was a Stalinist just to make this guy even more interesting. Because of his work when it came to drugs, and because of his work with hostage negotiation tactics, and because of his work with a lot of other sort of, like, legal stuff, he has gotten the nickname the Cop Doctor. So, take that for what you will. You know my opinion, at least, about cops, when I've been mentioning ACAB a lot. And he has... The the cop particles radiating of this dude are enormous. So... In this case specifically, it kind of sounds more like the police hostage negotiator was gaslighting the entire world and calling Christine crazy instead of listening to actual rational criticism that she had of how the police handled the situation. Christine has said that she was only acting in a way that she thought was going to reduce her risk of getting shot, which would be a very normal and sane thing to do, and felt that she had a lot better rapport, felt a lot safer, and was not at risk of being shot by the hostage takers. Mm-hmm. She also talked about how they are playing board games and telling stories to each other. And they're, they had a great time. And the situation becomes even worse, though. Because like you can tell I, I already undermined the concept of Stockholm Syndrome existing as a thing. The We've con- been
1: undermining this yeah. syndrome this entire episode. End of every section, be like, it's not real. It's not real.
0: <laughs> well they could be there it could i don't want to say it's not real yes like i i personally believe we had a thing about this before recording <laughs> here i personally don't really buy that it's here like i'm skeptical of people who are nicknamed the cop doctor mm-hmm. uh with scientific validity but that's not to say that it, there's nothing going on there no. have been some meta-analysis that do see with like especially like bank heists and stuff like that mm-hmm. That there are there are common trends that keep happening Mm -hmm. and even when you account for a lot of the fuck-ups in the initial case for example Mm -hmm. um they're extraordinarily rare and it's a tangible connection at best so there's there's probably not like there's probably not like a thing called Stockholm syndrome yeah but it's like there's not nothing there probably
1: the thing that I've been trying to say in my uh, sections at the very least is that this kind of, these kind of situations are a lot more complicated than they might seem, especially when viewed through the lens of media coverage. Mm-hmm. And often, just like slapping this label of Stockholm syndrome is not enough to yeah. explain all of it, and likely there's a lot of other factors mm-hmm. involved.
0: Like, and I think a, a big reason that a lot of like academic sources don't really use the term Stockholm syndrome is just because it's not really productive, yeah. right? Like, you you need to be more specific. And there are more specific terms if you're talking about specific things happening. But as I said, the situation gets even worse, right? Because immediately following the bank heist, uh, and especially when they became even more cemented in the public consciousness after Patricia Hearst, it was primarily used for like kidnapping victims and like bank heists or like um, robbery hostages, like hostage situations generally. But it has since grown to encompass like what I kind of mentioned of like, Workplace situations and like domestic violence situations, um, sex trafficking victims, uh, slaves, voluntary sex, sex workers, for example, all of like issues that arise within those sectors, specific to those sectors, are oftentimes put under the label of these people have Stockholm syndrome. But that means that the label has like grown so much and encompasses so many things that it becomes even more watered down, basically, mm. and becomes even less productive. So while I do want to clarify that there might be something going on here, Stockholm Syndrome in and of itself is probably not real, but because of the gray areas, it is typically classified as a contested illness, Mm. which is the best you can get, basically, with the tenuous evidence that exists for it. Can you imagine, dear listener, how fun it was for us to research it? Because (laughs) we we don't do a lot of psychological topics, first of all. It's a weird kind of semi-soft science, first of all, but it's also... A controversial subject within psychology. I made a video on my youtube channel like a year or so ago where I kind of undermined the concept of psychology in general so doing this is like I don't, double,
1: I, double is annoying and also yeah. um even the historical part I, I, I will say it was a little bit challenging yes. because we like it's unclear it's unclear what the victims were thinking if they're victims if they're revolutionaries mm-hmm. if they're you know, like were they thinking rationally? Mm-hmm. Were they under duress? Were they afraid? So it's also, you know, it was very difficult to know how to present the situation mm-hmm. and how to interpret what happened. Yeah. Uh, so th- this was a, a whole a whole episode of we don't know, we don't know,
0: <laughs> and the thing <laughs> maybe <that> I- maybe <laughs> not. Also, the thing that I got really annoyed about too is uh, this this bank heist is in Swedish called Norman Tolus Dramat. The mm-hmm. drama, like, the the, the drama. <laughs> the drama at the square. Um, and there have been so many retellings of this mm-hmm. in blog form, in, like, radio article form, in movie form, in, like, various book form and, like, TV show form. It's difficult to find sort of, like, the definitive story, like, minute-by-minute minute set of events that actually happened. Like, Various sources will say that, like, oh, he had a, a fake beard. Some say well, he only had a loose mustache. Some say that, like, he got kind of buddy-buddy. Some, some people say that Clark was not super buddy-buddy. Some people say that Clark potentially, like, uh, flirted with some of the hostages. Some say that he possibly, like, assaulted uh, one of them. Which everyone denies, by the way. That that probably did not happen. But, like, yeah, everyone has, like, their own take on the story as well. And also, the police narrative... And the hostage narrative are separate. And it gets even worse because fucking Jan-Erik and Clark, like, it's been like 40 years since this fucking event, too. They both have told their stories, like, again, over the years. And it's, they've diverged so much that, like, their stories contradict each other now. They don't so even remember anymore what they, happened. They're, like, they just say shit. Mm. So it's like, it could be true. Could, I, who, who knows? Nothing else.
1: Nils definitely doesn't know.
0: We don't like Nils. But folks, that has been our episode on Stockholm Syndrome, which you did enjoy for fully rational reasons. We did not gaslight you into liking it. And if you think we did, no, we didn't. You're crazy. No, you didn't.
1: No, you didn't. We
0: didn't. We'd never said that. If you liked this episode, please let us know. Send us a comment on Spotify or on social media.
1: Let us know if you can hear my lisp, by the way, because I just got retainers installed and i feel like i'm lisping i've been lisping for about a month and it's not going away and my orthodontist was like no don't worry it's gonna go away in a week huh <laughs> i still got
0: it it has been over a month
1: it's been over so let me know if you hear it or not because uh, i am afraid
0: i actually have not heard it this entire podcast but once you mentioned it i suddenly started hearing i can hear constantly. it constantly i
1: can hear it on myself all the time Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode and we will see you on the next one.
0: (laughs) Bye-bye.